Okay, Golf WRX, the newest episode of the Gear Dive brought to you by Titleist. I'm your host, as I've been since day one, uh, Johnny Wonder. Merry Christmas week to everybody. Hope everybody uh, is having an awesome time with their families. Uh, obviously, it's lockdown, Corona lockdown. Uh, we're in, uh, I'm over here in Toronto, uh, American living in Toronto, American masquerading as a Canadian, uh, but we're in full lockdown over here. Um, so hopefully you guys are spending some time with your families. Um, just a bananas time we live in. What a world. What a world. But i uh, got to make the best of it. So anyway, uh, we have a cool show today. We have uh, my friend and a very respected teacher out on tour and, and on the mat, uh, Mr. Dana Dahlquist, who I'm not going to rattle off all the names he's worked with, but he's worked with a ton of top players, um, amateur and, and professional alike. He worked with my buddy Nico Bellini, he worked with Vic Hovland, Charlie Howell. Um, you know, these are all pastor uh, or current students, so guy knows guy knows his stuff. I've uh, been wanting to get him on the show for a long time, um, but finally the schedule's aligned with lockdown and Christmas and everything, so i um, excited to get Dana on here. He's somebody that I rely on a lot for um, my swing stuff, um, you know, obviously because he works with a lot of friends of mine, but uh, also he's uh, very accommodating to my insanity, so um, always excited to get his insight. It's a cool conversation. I've ordered it's pre-recorded, so I'm recording this intro after I recorded with Dana, but kind of just go in circles you know we go on and on about different things and talks a little bit about uh you know how to get better over the winter and some of his opinions on some of the methods that are out there and how to evolve as a teacher and as a player and all that stuff it's a really really cool uh conversation it's actually a long one uh it's like over an hour um so hope you guys enjoy it uh but before we get into that with dana want to talk about the last thing that you're going to think about you know if you haven't bought your your christmas present said the best thing to do for the gear junkie, there's nothing better, nothing better for the gear junkie than to get a set of SM8 Vokey wedges. Uh, you know, obviously they dominate the tour, they dominate the retail space. Uh, there's nothing better than getting just a fresh set of, of Vokey wedges, especially if you get them dialed in, get them fit. Um, so if you're in the market for some new wedges, go to uh, Vokey.com, Titleist.com. Um, if there's not enough time to find an authorized Titleist fitter, uh, on the website, you can kind of figure out what you need just uh, just based on how they break everything down. So um, go ahead and check out all the grinds, all the bounce options. Uh, you know, always go raw. They offer a bunch of different finishes, but, you know, raw is best because it's cool, people. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, go to Vokey.com or uh, if you really want to nerd out, go to Wedgeworks and build a custom set with stamping and stuff like that. Some special grinds, some extra, some extra stuff that they do on there. It's uh, something I actually do to kill time. Uh, just build wedges in my head uh, and then send pictures of them to Aaron Dale to bother him because uh, it's just it's what I like to do. Uh, so anyway, like I said, Titleist.com, Vokey.com, Wedgeworks. Build some wedges. Merry Christmas. Let's get into it with Dana Dahlquist. Hope you guys enjoy the show. Uh, next week we have Pat Boyd and Nico Bellini for the final final uh, and then we'll see what happens from there. It's the gear dive. Here we go. Um, well, oh, thanks for finally coming on. I know we've been talking about getting you on here for a while, but, uh, we've, the stars sort of finally aligned and, and, and now you're here. So just for the folks that don't quite know the work that you do and, and who you are, just give us, give me the bullet points of who Dana Dahlquist is and, and exactly what, uh, your teacher, obviously a pretty famous one, but like, you know, who do you, who do you work with? What's your, what's your gig? 
Well, first off, um, I'm a, I'm a range rat. So, um, <laughs> that goes at the top of the list. So, um, no, but in, in seriousness, yeah, I, I'm basically your, your daily range teacher guy you would meet at a public golf course first. And the only little caveat that's kind of different is that I do have some tour players on the LPJ and the PJ tour that I work with. Um, and so, but it kind of, you know, I, I'm kind of more or less a everyday teacher. So I see everybody and it's not where I'm handcuffed to, you know, going around and following the pros all the time. So, and, and it's specifically, I'm kind of just more or less a swing guy. Right. Um, you know, guys come to me just more or less for the golf swing. Well, your name came into my, to my ether, you know, one of my, I guess I, I call him my little brothers, Nico Bellini, who's been on the show a bunch. Um, mm-hmm. was the first person that ever mentioned your name and it was sort of in, at a time in his game where, you know, I think he was coming off of the, I don't want to call it the lead better thing, but he was working with Will Neal a lot. And, you know, he's kind of in that mm-hmm. bunch of, of coaches and, you know, just kind of find his game. And I remember him going to see you and, and seeing his face kind of light up because of what you had told him, you know, there was a lot of research mm-hmm. and, and diligence to what you had done, but at the same time, he felt like Nico Bellini again you know, he was taking the best yeah. of best of him and using it and emphasizing it and making, making that part of it better without trying to recreate the wheel. So talk to me a little bit about your, it's such a bullshit way to say it, but like, you know, your swing philosophy or, you know, what, what do you subscribe oh, to? Or is there a thing anymore? Or what is it? Yeah. I mean, it's so broad, you know, it, it's funny because you kind of go in and out year after year of like this, it's strange where we're at right now because you you can kind of say that there is a systematic way to going about doing things, and every coach, prom, you know, predominantly does. And, and whether that's like a visual thing or a principle thing that they kind of hang their hat on, um, I've tried my best to be very malleable and open to discussion with you know different individuals, and I'm not very um, verbal about it. And I, I think because if I don't understand it, I don't want to get into have a conversation about it too heavily. And, um, y- you know, it, it's kind of like this whole biomechanics thing that's been going on for five years. You know, we really don't know all this stuff, at least um, it's continuously being researched. And that's one of the, the beautiful things that actually kind of parallels golf instruction as a whole. It's that we really don't know everything. And the older I get, the, the the more I realize that. And, you know, it's funny, you know, when, I, when you work with players and then you don't, and you stop working with a certain player or certain players, and then you work with other players along the line of that, you know, nobody's really perfect. And, you know, what you say to a person might not be perfect either, but, you know, you kind of run this trial and tribulation along the way. And, you know, it it may either click or it doesn't click, but I think we're getting really close year after year of getting better and better instruction. So as far as I'm concerned, I guess early on, I would be considered a very mechanical uh, mechanics based guy. And along the way it's, it's become much more broad. Um, And which it should be, you know, I, I, not that I don't believe in in nothing (laughs) because that's what people think, but um, because you can go to that point, but, but, you know, it's, it's not so uh, you're not so handcuffed to particular principles. And I think that's important to understand. Well, you also have to keep in mind that, you know, 
coaches, for example, get pretty boxed into a philosophy or boxed into to, to being able to deliver information in a certain way or whatever. But the thing is, is like you're malleable too. Like you said it perfectly. Like, you know, you're in just, you, you learn a certain way too. So sometimes yeah. your pathway to be the best coach is to take in as much information, subscribe to certain philosophies for a certain part of your life. I believe that two things can be true at the same time. You might think one way is a great way to teach a golf swing, but at the same time be completely open-minded. Right. And yeah. I've, I've seen with some of the players and I'm not going to list off the people that you've worked with, but, um, they're, you know, different planets of players. I mean, it's not like you just have one model of player and they all swing the same. Yeah. Um, you seem to navigate yeah. those waters very well. And, and, you know, the thing that I've really liked watching you, uh, do over the last, we'll call it four or five years, I guess, since maybe since the first time I met you is you do manage a bunch of different personalities really well. Um, you know, on the tour side, sometimes, sometimes, sometimes. but, <laughs> but you, you seem to do, you seem to not, cause that to me is probably the biggest challenge of any tour coaches. It's not whether or not you can teach the guy. I mean, if, if the guy's got a brain and he's can absorb information for the most part, they can digest your information. For me, a lot of it's probably got to be personality wise. You know, how do they deal with stress? How do they deal with adversity? Cause you know, you're the first person yeah. to look at it. If, the, if, it, if the shit goes, hits the fan, they're going to look at the coach essentially it's not yeah, for it's sure. not your it's not your fault <laughs> like you're not hitting the shots yeah yeah and it's interesting because you know if we can kind of paint a picture here where you know uh let's say a really good player i.e a tour player which is such an infinite demographic to, to have a conversation about in reality but you know i think people are interested in that so we'll talk about it um so you know, they come, they, they pick up the phone or they text and say, Hey, you know, I'm struggling with my game. I, I want to do X, Y, Z. And in reality, it's not necessarily really mechanics. That's the issue. It's kind of the whole behavior and it's the daily routine of how they put everything together. And, you know, that's what kind of led them to the path that they're on. And over time, if the relationship is good with the individual and there's commonalities amongst, you know, you know, does the guy like to fish? We can talk about fishing. We can kind of break the ice and then have a, have a better conversation later on about, Hey, you know what? This part in your golf swing is not working. You you have to work on it for three months. Now they don't want to, they don't want to do that initially at the, the first um, conversation, but you know, they might hear it, but they might dismiss it, but it's a tough thing because at that level, at that level, you're, you're, you're really kind of, um, you know, messing with their income. Right. That's a very, very big uh, conversation. If if a guy is making you know a million plus a year, and you're going to make a change, that could go good or bad. So you, you have to be very sensitive to that. Um, but you know, in reality, the 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 cool part I think about what I've continued to do, and I, I'm not trying to sound arrogant here, but being able to teach a lot of regular players on a regular basis is really the important part of the whole foundation. Because if you're not doing that, um, they're not necessarily guinea pigs, but they're kind of edifying what you do through getting quicker results. So whether it's not like I had a a friend of mine's uh, wife come the first time they're from Houston, they flew out and she just got into golf a year ago and, you know, really, in an hour from not making contact, making contact, and then all of a sudden having a different compression on the ball and then having a ball flight after that. Um, 
and you know, obviously she was a good athlete. So that helps. That's another equation, this whole thing. But, um, you know, that's kind of the, the, the cool part because that's literally the same thing you might tell a, a, a tour player, right? It's just delivered a lot uh, more gingerly at times to a tour player than you would be to the average person because you're not affecting their, their wallet. Well, so. let's, so yeah, so I want to move off the tour because it, it, it is, it is interesting, the tour thing, but I mean, it's, it's one one hundredth of what you do. I mean, you're, like you said, you're a Mac guy, you're a range rat, you deal with, you know, the normal yeah. players all the time. And I think, you know, even on tour, the whole point to you doing your function is so the general player can get better. Uh, and I want yeah. to talk a little bit at the end of the show about, you know, some things that we can do during the winter time to actually get better, you know, whether it's mirror work or whatever, Absolutely. we'll get into that in a second. But, you know, what I'm noticing when, cause I've gotten to know a lot of tour guys, but as it relates to the general golfer, everybody wants to be able to do the same thing. And you said something really interesting about delivering information, you know, in a sensitive way for some guy that's playing for his, his, you know, his, his rent money or his lease money or whatever to a, you know, a guy who wants to beat his buddies on a Saturday. What I'm noticing though is the sense of urgency sen- tends to be the same. Um, a yeah. lot of it is for the general golfer, and, and you could probably, re- you know, general golfer probably sees you once a month. If it's a regular student, he's there once a month, maybe twice a month, maybe for so like the diehard yeah. double D people, right? That hour that they get with you, it has to procure results in their mind. You know what I mean? It has to move them forward. Mm-hmm. So the sense of urgency st- sort of still is the same. So the intensity yeah. of the teaching from your end still has to be the same. You know, the expectation levels when they get in their car is sort of the same. Yeah. They, they want to get better. So how, you know, yeah. give, me, give me an example of, of a general golfer, you know, first time seeing you, what's a healthy level of expectation to go in with? If it's, say, for example, me, if I'm walking and you see me hit a golf ball and I go, Dana, I want to get better today. Yeah what's your, what are you going to say? Like, okay, well, I'll tell you what, dude, you're going to hit a hundred balls and we might hit one good. Yeah. Well, you know, what's interesting about that is that that could be the case. And it depends on obviously the individual and how they are and what their schedule is and, you know, how good of an athlete they are and is their personality very A type and they're, you know, CEO of a company and they are very diligent or are they, or they just kind of, they just want to hit balls with their buddies. Like it it really kind of, you have to kind of make sure that that you find the right little notch before you really go down that path. But when you do get to that, you you have to kind of develop a game plan. And now it's very easy for me to do this with the the young players and the kids because, you know, they don't have a mortgage to worry about. They don't have a car payment. So um, when they do get to that point, you can, and I can actually show them that box. Like I literally do. Like if somebody's a guy like me, 40 years old, you know, has all the, the, the things that they have to worry about. And then I'm giving them a box of stuff like a toolbox. And then they look at it and go, Oh my gosh, that's a lot of stuff to do. Then we have to prioritize within that toolbox, what needs to be done and then create a timeline around that. Now um, that might not be flashy, but it might be something at least different enough that they're accepting to do it. And that's kind of the hopeful deal. So some of those things might be fundamental. They might be practicing different with different clubs, understanding how to hit different targets. And then within that change some habitual things like, you know, walking in and out of the shot, checking their grip, um, you know, stuff like that. Very, very minute things that, 
that a good player kind of takes for granted, such as, oh, I clean my clubs every three or four balls if I'm ending off grass. Right. So when we when we kind of go from that point and we go, okay, well, we, we have this controlled situation, we go, okay, well, now let's uh, let's look at your mechanics on this. So have they have they produced any change in the last, you know, 10, 15 minutes? And if they really haven't, then we kind of blend in some exaggerated feels. Um, maybe it's a waggle something like that that develops the feel, but nothing so flashy or, or systemic that um, they have to really grind on it. And to be fair, um, I kind of do it. This is, this is probably where this gets a little bit systematic. Okay. So everything kind of starts from the beginning of the swing. So how you address the ball, how you move. And if the beginning of the swing isn't necessarily correct, uh, there's no way on the downswing we're going to make anything work every single time right it might happen one out of a hundred you know so um generally speaking um i I would say when people send me film this is where it really shows up guys send me film all the time like online lessons or whatever and a guy comes in and he writes in oh i'm really steep on the downswing the face is open i'm standing up i'm goat humping at whatever it is and that's very frequent and but when you go all the way to their address, you know, that you see really weird stuff like their left foot's flared out too much at address, their, their body's in the wrong contorted spot. And you're like, Hey, listen, bro, we gotta, we gotta fix some early things so that the, the dominoes fall in the right place. Right. Cause golf's really not that hard. If you have the right sequence, it's really not, but um, you know, and guys are, you know, because of Instagram and social media, guys are chasing pictures. You know, it's like, you know, I take my shirt off and I'm like, well, I don't look like that. <laughs> so I, I, I'm, I'm a little bit skewed in my viewpoint on things. And so I need to kind of like ring that in a little bit and go, okay, well, I'm, I can see it like half the tour does this. I can accept that and I can play from there. Right. Um, because look, Phil Mickelson has what, 39 wins right now. He's pretty good. Mm-hmm. And so if I'm a little steep and whatever, you know, not necessarily in Phil's regard, but, um, you know, I could still play, still play golf from there. So that, I think that's really the big message that needs to be conveyed is that, yeah, there might be some perfect matchup, perfect position or whatever we want to call it. And, but we just can't do that in 10 minutes. You know, we, we need to get that, you know, long-term that's, that's a long-term conversation. Well, it's also like, there's this, it happened like in the last, I don't know, two or three years, you know, the, the shallowing of the club, you know, everybody's trying to get shallow, yeah. shallow, 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 shallow. And then if, the funny thing is if you go to, you know, you brought up a good example, then we're going to use a tour player example just because for shits and giggles, but like you use Tiger Woods, for example, the way he swings it now, like there's yeah. nothing shallow. He's down the line, you know, it's straight up, straight down. Just like he's kind of always swinging. Yeah. There's nothing, you can't take, you take his swing and Matt Wolf swing, for example, those are different planets, Sergio and Tiger, different yeah. planets, Tiger and Phil, sort of different, you know, Phil's steeper than Tiger, but similar planets, right? That's, that's, those are generational. They're separated by generations, yeah. right? But you as a coach, like you said, with social media, you are up against Instagram in a weird way. You can use it yeah. as a tool, but you're up against, uh, yeah. you know, a friend of mine, George Gankus and his videos and his students. And then you get some of these other yeah. guys that are, it can get confusing. And I don't think yeah. people really understand, um, the importance of of uh, 
you know, why a player would want to get shallow or why would they need to get shallow? What, you know, what, what is that for? So can you really quickly, just for the people that listen to this show, um, you can, like you said, you can play good golf from any position, but like, how do you ingest the information you see online and, and, you know, using the ground and all these things that you hear about, like, how do you whittle it down? If you're never going to go see the, yeah. how do you mine through all the bullshit or if it's not even bullshit, how do you mind just the information. Yeah, I think, and that's, that's the hard part because, um, you know, we're not trying to, you know, I have guys that aren't necessarily shallow, shallow, they're kind of in line and I don't really have a lot of guys that are inherently above that, but you know, maybe two that are good players. Um, but the counter to that is that those players are also extremely wide. Right. So like Tiger Woods, where it's, you know, a little bit above, he, he's much wider uh, in the downswing um, as far as the angle between the left wrist and the shaft. So um, that's kind of a, one of those deals where there's certain things that have to match up in the swing. So if you're a player that is, you know, somewhat vertical coming down and you have to kind of match up the right components in order for that to fit. And you have to kind of understand that and don't just look at your swing and go, oh, that's just awful. It's like, okay, what do I do well in my golf swing? Yeah. And first off, if, if you go, oh, I do this really well, then you can kind of deduce that maybe I can only change one or two things and make it extremely, extremely good. Now, if there's, if there's things that are limiting in people's opinion, this is why I say opinion, um, then so be it, have a conversation with that individual or that coach and, and don't just guess. So if, um, if you're like, okay, well, Dana, I see your guys do this. Now have a conversation with me and say, Hey, why do you have your guys do this? Now, um, look, we're, we're all coach, all of, all of us coaches are trying to do, you know, similar things, um, which is essentially get the player to play better. Um, now we're not trying to necessarily change particular pitchers. So, um, I think if you get something that's better, it's more repeatable. You might hit it further. All those things are good, but you take one of those equations out, whereas, Oh, I just hit it straighter but I lost 20 yards. That's not a good equation. And if you just hit it 20 yards further, but you hit it 20 yards offline, that's not good either. So we, we need to kind of, you know, hone, <clears throat> excuse me, hone in on the big picture here. That's, that's the most important thing. What's, what's your metric. So, you know, you're a swing coach, right? But essentially you're a golf coach, right? I mean, you're, you're, yeah, yeah, you yeah. walk around with your players and you're talking about strategy and where to hit it. And, you know, it's, sure. not, it's not just range stuff. But what is your metric yeah. when you're coaching players, any player? Is it the score or is it how they hit the ball? Because theoretically, in my, in my experience, good, go- good golf doesn't always equal good ball striking, doesn't always equal good golf, right? It helps yeah. like shitload. Yeah. But on top of that, like you have to think, well, you have to hit it in the right, so you have to miss it in the right spot. So like, what is your metric with your students? If they come to you and say, hit it all over the place, but I shot 71, you're like, well, like, I don't know if I want to fix it. Yeah, I mean, scores are good. Yeah, I think that's. I think you kind of nailed it when you said missed in the right spot. Like if you have players that, you know, uh, from my standpoint, if I'm not hitting it great or I do hit it great, I kind of know where my miss is going to go. Right. And I, I think that's the the probably the best metric because you're not really controlling anything. You're 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 kind of adjusting 
this little micro microcosm of a sweet spot on a club face traveling X amount of miles per hour. <laughs> and then the ball's projecting out there and you're missing it in, in some, you know, relative space. And the better you are, the tighter that is. But I, I don't think that, um, you know, it's worthy to say on a Tuesday at an event that, oh, your club face is a little open coming down. And therefore, that's going to change the outcome of whatever. So it might just be, you know what, you're playing this this week and you're going to play that this this week. Right. And, um, you know, I would say if anything that the number one thing is that it feels flush. Like, are you hitting more solid shots for the for for the for the average player? I think that's a big thing. Um, And, you know, if it's somewhat of a, a dependable curvature on the ball one way, um, most of the time, uh, the closer you get to that, the better. And then um, understand when you practice around that component that, you know, shoot, I'm actually kind of keeping that in mind. Right. Um, you know, that I'm aiming properly and I'm, you know, missing in the appropriate areas. But and that's not that's not that hard to do. Um, but I, I see too many guys just, you know, number one on the range at El Dorado is that, you know, guys just struggle making contact. Right. They're so focused on that. They can't get to that second step. Um, so, yeah, I think that's where the average player should, should kind of look at and go, okay, well, I need to make better contact more often. You know, what are the things that are keeping me away from that? Um, so I don't think the tour player thinks about that so much as the curvature aspect. Well, yeah, if you get like, like I know Chris Babcock pretty well, like he's a Washington kid. Yeah. I know you've worked with him for a long time. Like if I take his game, you know, I'm saying crazy. He doesn't hit it all. I mean, he gets it far enough and hits it well enough, but yeah. he's, in my opinion, he's never going to be Ben Hogan ball striker guy. Like that's not really his game. Yeah. He wedges it and puts it to death. Like that's, but he plays yeah. good golf in my opinion to maybe get out there someday. You know, he, he he's, yeah. he's savvy that way. His golf IQ is really, really high. So when I look yeah. at him, you know, it's it's sort of like the, the nut to crack with this player like him is it really getting him to accept the fact that he's never going to be, you know, who uh, was a great boss, Sergio Garcia. Like he's, he's never going to, you yeah. know, he's never going to hit it at that level, but he can wedge it and putt it at really, really yeah. high level and, and to win and to play well, to get out there. He only really has to wedge it put it well, hit the fairways. Um, yeah. Do you feel like, and I'll get to my question here in a second, but I met a statistician, this guy named Rich Hunt, who works at him. I think yeah. you know, you know Rich. Yeah, great guy. Yeah, yeah, really good guy. Really interesting data, by the, way, by the way. But what to me, like his data, for any player, I wish everybody could do this, but it's really, really granular data. But what he basically does is exposes what a player's never really done well. Like, so if you okay. take... If you take, uh, like, I'm buddies with Jimmy Walker, for example. And I'm like, where is, where in Jimmy, you know, Jimmy's been kind of rough with the driver lately in the last couple of years, but he's never really been a good driver of the golf ball. He's putted it well. He's ironed it well. He's really good out of the rough. So I asked Rich, I'm like, if you're looking at these stats, like, what does Jimmy Walker need to do to win again? He's like, he needs to raise his weakness. So if he's a, out of one out of 10, if he's a three out of 10 driver, he needs to get that three out of 10 to four out of 10 maintain his level of putting and iron play and then he'll win again right. he's never going to get above five out of ten driving i don't care how good of a swing coach he finds he's never going to get yeah. there he's never because he's never it's never yeah. happened so you're playing with you're already in debt before you even start playing the game so he's right, like so right so as a coach do you subscribe to that like look you're like you're never going to be this player 
So let's just try to maximize this area as much as we can, get it to a point where it enhances the putting and the chipping and the rest of the stuff, and then you're in the ballpark. Is that a more manageable yeah. expectation for with any player from a coach's perspective? It's kind of a long-winded so, question. No, no, but it's a really good one because it depends where they fall on the bell curve. So right. if the player, if you're on the bell curve in the middle um, and you're just like average everyday Joe um, to, you know, in Jimmy's case and um, funny guy, by the way, a good, good joke teller, but um, <laughs> side note, but um, you know, in Jimmy's case, you know, he's got, he's, he's about my age. So, He's got, you know, a few years left on the tour, uh, like a decade where he, he could probably do that without reconstruction. Right. Now, if we're talking about a kid who's 16 or 17 or in college or whatnot, there, it depends on the metric. So if the metric is I can improve, improve my wedge game, uh, absolutely. Like that's not hard to do at all. Or if I need to get a guy to go from 116 to 127 – and they're a college kid. That's pretty easy. I mean, right. done that 25 times. So, but the problem is if you get a guy my age who is boxed in, and we're talking about now we're, we're right back in the tour thing. Um, <laughs> if we get a guy who's no, but sir, this is, this is valid because look, there's, there's only one tiger woods and, and one of the metrics tiger kind of encompassed. He's the only guy who changes swing four or five times. Right. There's a reason for that. He doesn't have any fear. So um, the guy is fearless. So if you look at the average tour guy, they're latent with fear, right? It's just a fact. They, they, are, they, know how to, they know how to score their way. They're really good at it, and they don't want to rock the boat. Right. So if we don't want to rock the boat, um, and I'm going to be a yes-man coach, which is one of my issues is I'm not a yes-man coach. I kind of said it like it is, and I don't really <laughs> care um, because I still have a job at home. <laughs> right. um, but you probably make, more, probably make more money on the map than you do on tour. <laughs> I do, yeah. So, um, But, but there's, there's, that's one of the major things is like, okay, well, how do we turn a 40-year-old guy into a 20-year-old and go fearless and go, okay, we're going to get 20 more yards on your tee shot? I mean, Bryson DeChambeau is doing it right now. Right. So uh, I think it can be done, um, but that component has to be addressed. So it goes, it snaps right back into the behavior thing. So if you're going to be a better iron player, same thing, better wedge player, better putter. I mean, you, you know, a lot of guys that <coughs> subscribe to, oh, I have putting yips, right? You've, you've seen that. A hundred percent. And yeah. And so one of the things that's very interesting about guys that say putting yips, and this is, I'm not a putting guy, but I, they, they all have a very eloquent story. It's like painted out beautifully. And it's like the Mona Lisa of stories. And then you <laughs> talk to guys like Brad Faxon and they just go around telling everybody how good of a putter they are. Right. So <laughs> it's like the opposite. So I think that's the big component here is to get a guy who can kind of make that little edge and, it, it turns into a, a little bit of a brain surgery of what is their narrative and how are we going to change it? And I, it's the same with every human being. It's the same with me. Um, you know, I'm human. I have my narrative going off my back of my head, but for, sure. um, for I think for the average golfer, that's kind of refreshing because they're like, okay, well, they're not superhuman. They just been doing it from a young age and they understand it better. So right. how do I understand it better for me? Um, I, that's, that's a big one. Um, and, and you know, what's funny is when I was 25 to, or 30 for that matter, I'd be afraid to say that, but now I'm 
I don't even care. <laughs> I'll well, say. Yeah, yeah. I mean, do you, do you find uh, now that you're getting a, I don't want to call you old, you're younger than I am, but I mean, you're four years younger than I am, but like the, do you find that your capacity for people pleasing as a coach starts to go away? Cause at first I got to admit when, oh, you're, when, yeah. you're, when you're out there at first, it's gotta be like, Oh, of course, of course we're going to teach you how to swing left-handed. And of course, yeah, that's your, you know, I, I can assume, yeah. I, I'm assuming there's a lot of yeses as a young coach, yeah. cause you got to make a name for yourself, right? You got to get lucky yeah. somehow. So how has that yeah. morphed? Yeah. Yeah. That, 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 that has definitely been less of a challenge as of late because um, I don't know how I can't really put a date on it, but pretty much, you know, at the end of the day, at one point, if I just give my opinion or be honest to my opinion at the time, which that opinion could change in five years. I don't care if it does, but <laughs> Um, it, it's, it's important that the player or players or whatever realize that at least at that time I'm being honest and I'm not sugarcoating it. Right. And, um, look, it, it, I think that's the, cause I'm trying to do what's best for them. And, um, I treat it like how I would, you know, talk to my kids, you know, I'm going to give you the best advice I can give you. And if you want to learn the hard way, learn the hard way. But that's I'm not going to let you, you know, jump off the bridge with no parachute because it, you're nine times out of ten you're going to hurt yourself, right? If not all the time. Let's see, so let's see if yeah, you know how to fly really quickly. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, I've kind of let that go because there's there's no more fear of loss on that. Um, whereas before that probably would have been an issue. How, how has the speed chase in the general population? the speed chase on tour, how has it translated or affected your ability to teach students? Now I'm sure I'm assuming that a lot of, a lot of the students that show up on your mat now, everyone wants to hit it further. Well, no, no, no. Okay. It, so it went a little bit, but not entirely. So the good news is that we're kind of, I was kind of ahead of the curve on that one. Um, okay. I think because I've had a good relationship with guys like Chris and um, one of, uh, one of my guys is a long drive guy, Josh Koch. Um, Good guy. He actually beat Kyle Berkshire um, in a long drive contest a couple months ago. And, um, you know, we've been going down the road of this stuff for quite some time. And really understanding, like, how to put it all together has been huge. So um, it all kind of makes sense. And the, and the cool part about it is it's a, it's a little bit liberating at the same time. But, yeah, like, we go back four or five years ago. I remember we had you know, kind of understanding how the ground stuff works. I mean, that's, I don't want to get into like the terminology because it's boring, but it's way over my head. Anyway, um, so. We started talking about frontal plane stuff. I just went, okay, nobody really cares. <laughs> okay. So, um, but it's true though. Like nobody, the, we do, I, the coaches do it. Yeah, other guys just gloss over, but like getting somebody to actually move better, more dynamically with a better sequence increases their speed essentially. So, when that all, when that whole recipe comes into play and we kind of start figuring out some of it, not all of it, we still haven't figured out all of it, but we got most of it. Um, you're able to get a guy from 105 to 115 in like 10 swings. Like it's right. not that hard if they're, if they're able bodied. So uh, that now I do get, look, every young kid, okay, after the lesson, let's just smash drivers, you know. In, let's get you to 130 like right and it's cool to a point um but we're not going to hang our hat on it it's just nice that you're able to do it right um 
you know, but here's a funny thing that Rich actually told me going back to Rich. So, and I'm going to butcher this, but I'm going to give you kind of the, the Dana Dahlquist um, fourth person through the ear uh, channel. But I love stories like um, that. Yeah, they're perfect. They're perfect. So um, <laughs> about three years ago, we were looking at TrackMan AOA and clubhead speed. So angle of attack and clubhead speed. And Rich said, yeah, yeah, it's right around, you know, average 114, you know, pretty level one down or whatever. So it's pretty conducive to what the PGA Tour average says on TrackMan. But he brought up the Tour Championship or BMW or Tour Championships. This is where this all gets murky. Angle of attack went up like two degrees. Clubhead speed went up to 117. So it's pretty clear that the guys who are encompassing the top echelon of golf We're swung harder. faster and, and, and hit less down on it. So I, I just think that was very interesting. And I think that's when we do look at stats or we look at strokes gained or we look at all this kind of stuff, um, you have to sometimes go down a level or two to pick out what's important about that. And I, I, I this doesn't necessarily affect the average listener here, but um, it's just something to look at because I, I see it all the time where it's like, yeah, we're going to, you know, we're going to be okay at, at level. Well, we're not going to be okay at level at the speed that they're bringing to the table. Right. Um, so. Well, the, the, the funny thing is the average golfer, though, statistics to me can help the average golfer more than, more than people think it can. So, like, I'm a big believer that the Arcos da- database and TrackMan database can actually identify some really unique types of players. So, like, you know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm buddies with – Lance Vincent, who's the track man guy out there on tour. And, you know, I was talking yeah. to him, we were nerdy now. You might, you probably know Lance. And yeah, I, I kind of asked him like, who's the, sh- who gets the most out of their game on tour? Like track man could identify who hits it the worst, but gets the most, like who is the the top of that bell curve. And I guarantee it's not going to be a name like Mickelson or Woods or Kepka. It's not going to, it's going to be like Brian Gay, or it's going to be like Bernhard Longer. Because to me as a, you know, civilian golfer, I want to find out how that guy plays golf or that girl plays golf. Like find me that person because that's who the masses can learn from. How do they navigate right. on the golf course? You know, I like Bernhard Longer to me, for example, is fascinating to me because he can't hit it yeah. out of his shadow. He puts the teeth out of the ball, but his course management is yeah. phenomenal. Right. Like if yeah. he walks up to you and says, Hey Dana, I want to change a couple of things in my game. I'm assuming you'd be like, dude, get away from me. <laughs> like, go yeah. Away. It's funny. I've actually, I had him on track, man, for like 50 balls. He was, at, he was right at 104 every time at four up and face to path was like zero. Right. Like it was just, just absolutely laser beams. And, um, but, but that's kind of the thing. It's like, I think you look at Bernard, it's mindset. His mindset is, is important to look at when you look at a guy like that. Right. And his preparation is important to look at. I don't know if, if that can be related to the average player. Because it's not even related to half the champions tour, right? Um, because because they talk about it, they actively do. I mean, they they. I remember I was at Newport um, at the Toshiba, and like three guys were talking about Bernard Longer throughout the week about when he got there, what he was doing, mm-hmm. and at, at when I heard that, I'm like, well, what are you doing? Are you trying to condition him to win, <laughs> right? right. <laughs> you know, because he knows you're talking about it, so. Um, it, yeah, it's, it's, that is a fascinating individual for sure. And then I heard it again at Pebble one time at Poppy Hills. Um, 
So, uh, yeah, I, I think that is an individual who gets the most out of his game, but it's not really by mistake either. Right. Yeah, you know, I have asked. There is. Go ahead. No, no. I, I just think that's that's an important aspect to that. Well, I've asked, I've asked, you know, Rocco has been on the show a couple of times and, and I asked him the same thing. I'm like, what is it? Cause I'm like, what can, what can the normal guy siphon off of like something like Bernhard Longer? And he's like, he kind of said what you said. He's like, we were all trying to figure that out because he ain't the longest by any stretch. He don't hit it the best. Yeah. Good wedge play. Like he does everything pretty well, but he just beats the crap out of everybody. He's like, and he, he said, he said the same thing. It's like, it's his mindset. Like the guy just doesn't, yeah. Self, self-belief is just through the roof. And I'm like, so what drives that self-belief? He's like, guy just believes in what he's doing. Like he found something that yeah. worked and believes so much in what worked for him that his self-ownership yeah. is over the, you know, it's, it's, it, there's no fake to Bernhard Longer. Like he's completely absorbed and owned who he is. He's like the yeah. only other, Rocco goes, the only other person I can think of on our tour, on the Champions Tour, that is similar to that is Freddie. He's like, Freddie yeah. doesn't know how to play. Like, but Freddie's the, in a different class because Freddie has no clue how to play another way. Like, all he yeah. knows how to do is to hit it like that. It just happens to be yeah. really good. So, yeah. you know, you're not going to spin Fred Couples out of who he is because he wouldn't, he wouldn't he'd die. <laughs> like, he wouldn't know how yeah. to breathe. So, yeah. so he's like, you know, the point to what he was saying is like, so, you know, every golfer has a DNA that they sort of live by a life DNA that they live by. And the good coaches will identify that and sort of try to promote that. And, and sure. And, and that's something I've actually heard um, about you um, that you're really good. Nico told me that he's like the thing with, with, with Dana that he does really well is he didn't not trying to change me. You know, he's trying to make improvements and, and enhance certain things, but he totally understands my DNA. Like he totally understands yeah. what it is that I do well. Um, and he doesn't, didn't kick that to decide for his own ideas. You know, he, he tried to keep what I did well. And if he could put muscles on it, great. If he couldn't, whatever, we'll move on. Um, yeah. but that's, then I won't say that's rare these days, but that's, you know, that's, that's a great thing to be able to do as a teacher. Is that, I mean, do you believe Nico? Is that something that you focus on? Yes. To, to a particular point. I mean, Nico's kind of an outlier, you know, he's, I mean, you know, he, he has a, beautiful golf swing. He can make imitations. He's very, very smart golfer um, with a lot of experience. And he has an upbringing where he was, you know, the, the best. So right. he's got all these things that are, that are in there to, 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 I mean, literally to be the best. So, um, and he kind of knows that authentically. And I think that's, that, that's where I kind of look at Nico going, okay, well, what am I going to tell this guy? Right. <laughs> it, it's, it's, it, there's nothing you could really do other than explain, answer some questions and give some advice. But, you know, when it, when there is an opportunity, when you hit, hit a roadblock where there is a, a systemic issue, like let's say that um, a guy is not good from 200 to 230, right. Where you're like, Oh my gosh, that's a really bad thing. Um, you know, it, it turns into, okay, we're going to have to develop confidence first around the concept that we can actually hit that shot right and you're going to have to go with a little bit of blind faith that's going to occur and you know good example we had a i had a a guy um good player it's about a month ago and he had trouble hitting like five iron to two iron and i finally said look you know i grew up in an era where we didn't have you know the you know 
a one iron. <laughs> so <laughs> like we had to learn how to hit this thing in the air. And so I want you to kind of go outside your comfort zone in your box and make some adjustments here, you know, with your stance and everything and just get really good at almost being a trick shot artist and hitting it straight up in the air. And through that, and you know, 30 balls later, he was walking in and out of shots and doing it. And, but it, it was, I had to really kind of stress the fact, like, I don't care if you hit it off the toe or heel or you miss it or whatever it, it you just, you're just going to have to go a little blind faith. Right now it's tough to do. Now, obviously the kid was a good player, so it was easy to do that. And he was younger. So you didn't have, um, and it's different now, like uh, being older. And if I have a 20 year old kid stand there and I got 20 years on him, I could actually say those things. Whereas if I was 20 and he was 20, he'd be like, <laughs> screw you guy. I don't want to, I don't want yeah. Right. Right. So it's easier now, but, um, yeah, that's, that's, I think the, the, the thing with Nico, um, there wasn't a lot to change, um, you, to be fair. Um, have, you ever, have you ever seen his old man swing? No, have not. I'm going to send you a video. You got to see his, you got to see his old man. Like if, if you took his dad's name is Armando, if you took Armando's balls and put them in Nico, Nico would be on tour right now. Like everything. No that kidding. Our, like, you know, I'm, I'm, but he's like, you know, there's a group of kids that I know, like Stu Hegstead and some of these kids that all kind of grow yeah. up going. And, you know, Stu Hegstead, for example, is, you know, I would say 51% talent, 49% piss and vinegar, right? Like he's just, you got yeah. that self-belief. And Nico's one of those players that, you but know. Stu doesn't have any self-belief at all. Huh? No, it's, but it's, <laughs> no, but, but, it's <laughs> but it's like, it's, 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 whether it's manufactured or not, it's work, you know, whatever he's bought into himself. Oh, heck yeah. It's worked for him. He's, I mean, he's arguably the, you know, best, best amateur over 25 out there. But the thing, the thing that, um, and I'm going to get to, I want to get to, we're going to get to the, how to make actual people better here, the little system I want to talk to you about here in a second. But yeah. this is a lesson for every player out there, you know, somebody like Nico with all the talent in the world. The thing that he and I know him like the back probably better than anybody in the world, um, besides his own mother. The thing that he always lacked was that uh, some people might call it like a fuck you or you know the, the, uh, he's he misses he's yeah. not he's too much of a nice guy and he's too soft on the things that he probably could be hard on. Um, and you know when he's talking to golfers or he's talking to players that aren't very good, he's very good about talking about ownership. Um, owning your mistakes, owning this, owning that. I'm like, God, if you could just spin your verbal around and just put it on yeah. yourself, you probably would probably be out there right now. Right. Like you, we sure. were sure. talking to me on Saturday evenings, but um, okay. So we'll leave that aside. So the whole point to, to you and I wanted to get all, I was all geeked up to have this conversation. So it's winter time mm-hmm. and I'm not a hundred percent convinced that, overall players are getting better. I think players are getting longer and I think our understanding of golf and, and the golf swing is getting better, but I'm not a hundred percent convinced that everybody's getting better. The scores aren't really going down. You know, it's the game's still kind of like in flux. So give me the nitty gritty. So it's winter time. You're Dana Dahlquist, you know, super coach. What can people do? Any player out there that wants to get better, they're locked in their houses. What can we do at home to start to just start getting better? Is it gripping a club? Is it looking in the mirror? Like what? Just the fundamental stuff. Give me a couple of nuggets. Yeah, I mean, I think mirror work is is important. But you know, 
you don't need to go necessarily set up a bay in your garage and start ripping golf balls. I mean, if, if, if you have the means, great, fantastic. Do that. If you have the means to get radar, great, do that. But let's kind of just back that up for a minute because guys became good before all that stuff was around. And what it turns into is this little bit of a legacy that you put upon yourself to condition yourself to change. So whether it be, I'm going to change my grip where, you know, it's too strong. My fingers are apart, whatever it is. I'm going to, you know, throughout the day, practice my grip, like at reckless abandonment, like I'm a kid and make some changes. I think if we, if we establish first before what I need to do, how I'm going to do it, I can actually make the change and little microcosms of change will take place if we consistently do it over a period of time. Now I have most, my guys do stuff, gym related, uh, you know, movement related. Um, even for me, like right now I've been doing some stuff in my workouts with my feet to try to activate certain things to my body that I feel have regressed over 20 years of standing on a driving range with my neck tilted to the right, <laughs> looking at a video or like, I mean, seriously, like it's, yeah, it's yeah. changed my, my physiology. So, and I don't move as well. So, and plus I don't hit balls like I, like I should. And I just don't have the time. So when I look at my swing, I'm like, Oh my God, I'm just not moving the same way. So I have to condition that. And that takes little bits of pieces throughout the day in order to do that. Now, whether it be putting to full swing, because I hang my hat in this full swing department, let's just talk about that. We're not going to talk about chipping and putting. Is that good? That's fine with me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So uh, I, I, I think the, the best thing that you could probably do that will serve things is to go to a Lowe's or Home Depot and get some alignment sticks, which are those um, those uh, orange or yellow sticks that you see with a lot of golfers. Get two of them. Without buying, you know, you can go buy the ones that are pre-made at golf shops that cost forty dollars. Just go buy the dollar fifty ones, and work on some alignment and check that your ball position is good, and put some duct tape on it. Have it in your office or in your room. Set it down in your living room. Grab your grip, set up, and put it in a mirror and make sure that your upper body and lower body are in the right spot. That the club face is somewhat in a good spot. So you're set up for some success first. Um, most of the time guys are not like that guys and girls. So, um, I think that's the precursor. If you can do that, you're already better off. Number two is try to start understanding the right way to take the club back. Like don't, I think that that drives me nuts when, and I can do this fairly easy um, or speak about it is guys start looking at positions, let's say club shaft parallel to the ground on the backswing where, you know, shafts level to the ground position two or P2 and guys go, my club is too far inside. Do I need to hinge my wrists more to keep it more outside? It's the same thing every single time. So let's, let's bring some understanding to the table to fix your backswing. And you know what, go out there and watch a bunch of YouTube videos of different golfers and see what they do to do it. Because everybody does it different. So you kind of have to go down the lineage of what you do. So if you do go low inside, I'd go, okay, I'm going to take, you know, Raymond Floyd, Nancy Lopez, Sam Snead. You know, they all kind of took it inside. Right. And if you're comfortable doing that, okay, how did they move to do it? Did they move their hips more? Yes. Okay. So we're going to do that. And we're going to kind of just develop a pattern that conditions what your normal pattern is doing. 
and make it consistent. I think like those are the first two big things that I'd start with. And then if there's something in your swing, you're like, okay, um, my face is wide open coming down and I don't want that to happen, then start working on the opposite and don't be afraid to go the opposite and then start looking at, okay, my left wrist is open coming down. My trail arm is kind of, you know, internal, whatever you want to call it and just throw everything in the opposite direction. Right. And then start putting it into motion. But I think the, the, the dynamics are important. It's not the position. I think that's where people kind of get into um, problems whenever they're trying to make changes, they put it into a position sense and they need to understand the rhythm and the dynamics. It's huge. There's a reason why Hogan put it in, in, in his book, the waggles in the book for a reason. It wasn't because just to move your hands, it was to get you to ramp up the, the motion of your golf swing. Right. And that's something that we all look at good players is every good player has something, whether it's VJ, Jack Nicholas or whoever I said, Jack Nicholas. sorry. <laughs> that was, that was a macro Grady thing, right? That there. was a, um, that was a Christmas uh, Floyd in the slip uh, Santa Claus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, so yeah, it's so all these guys move that way. And I think, yeah, I think the average player, if they can kind of understand their, their basic motion does it conducively fit to what they're trying to do on their golf swing. Those are the two big ones. Which is something um, like really quickly to your point, like, which is something I've battled for a long time. And I've talked to you about my golf swing multiple times. And, you know, I, I look at my golf swing, Oh God, I peel it inside and they come down steep and then I pop out. Yeah. Of it. It's like, it's all, there's all this stuff going on. Right. And I'm like you, I have body limitations now because I sit in a chair and play airplane and, you know, I'm tight, but the the, the thing that, always kind of jams me up is it's like, okay, I need really need to work on in the mirror hands in club out. So all of a sudden without really rotating or moving my hips, all of a sudden I just get the club just going like, you know, like this up. Uh, yeah. And you know, automatically I'm already just working against myself because it's not teaching my body to move. And I remember you told me this a couple of years ago. Um, I think it was when I actually went to go see you um, about, you know, if you're working on something, try to do it as slow as you can, you know, like in the mirror, like, you know, yeah. when you it back, if you're going to work on the full rotation, like take 20 seconds to get it back, like really figure out each moment of that yeah, sequence yeah. is how, how do you, I guess the question here for, for here is does slowing it down that much when you're working on something, yeah. is that a big thing? Yeah, there, we call it mirror swinging. Yeah. So, like, you're, you don't even need a mirror, but just kind of understand the feel of it going back. And um, it's kind of uh, – you, you develop a little bit of sensitivity where those positions are. And then as you add speed to that, you start to kind of – your brain will start panicking and try to put it back into the, 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 old, the old pattern. Right. I think my thing just turned off. Hold on. I got you. <laughs> Um, there we go. So yeah, your brain will always try to kick you back to the old pattern because that's the path of least resistance. And so what you're doing is you're creating resistance, which has to be done at a slow pace. And so doing it in a mirror, doing it slow will create change. Doesn't change overnight. It's going to be done in a long process. And it's, it's interesting because every sport is similar. Um, I don't care if you're like learning how to move a kettlebell. So here's an interesting one. So if I'm doing like a, uh, a get up with a bell, so I have it in my right side, I do that. Boom. Pretty easy. I can go all the way up. I can time it 
the time it takes for my right side to get up is X. And on the other side, it's almost half as fast because I'm more dominant on my right side than I'm on my left. Now, what I've done is I've doubled the output. So what I do is I, I go heavier on the non-dominant side. I go lighter on the other and I double the workout on the non-dominant side to get that pattern to be better. Right. And over time that will balance out. Hopefully that's my theory. Um, <laughs> you know, there's it's, it's reckless theory, by the way. So you're going to make yourself left-handed. <laughs> right. Exactly. And reckless with a lot of coffee, but, um, <laughs> but just understanding the, the golf change component that, you're, a lot of people are doing things because they're they're dominant. So, like if 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 you do sit in a chair all the time, you're not rotating all the time. You're you're kind of just in a hip hinge all day long. It's kind of hard to go. Oh, I'm going to turn my hips in a certain way if I don't actually do that in my daily routine. So I need to make that dominant. Right. So that's why doing it slow over time will create change. It just does. Now, whether or not you get to your your outcome that you want then that turns into a limitation possibility. Right. And people are, you know, especially guys that sit a lot, they do have hip limitations. Well, yeah. That's, that's a drill that uh, like Robert rock, for example, is a big proponent of, you know, when he's working on his golf swing, anything he's trying to change in his golf swing, he'll sit in the mirror for hours and just do it slow. Yeah. And then he'll go to the range and it's slow, you know, it's really interesting thing to, but that's more of a, a Jedi mind trick than anything. It's, you know, like you said, for sure it's creating some dominance where there isn't any to be had. So, okay. So the things that you talked about, obviously the, the alignment sticks, the mirror work, what about, you know, preparing to go, you know, the space springs coming, people are starting to prep to actually go to the driving range. Where do you see yeah. as a teacher, where do people get it wrong with the practice, the general golfer? Like, Oh yeah. <laughs> where, do they get, where do they get practice wrong? Cause that's a question I get all the time. And I'm like, I don't, I have no fucking idea. Yeah. I think where the biggest part we, we look, we can kind of encompass three areas in the ball striking component. You've got the long game, hitting a driver, three wood. Then you have kind of this pseudo mid range hit more, hit more greens, whatever. And then you have this, you know, wedget range. Right. And the easiest one, in my opinion, to, to, to get exposure and and the biggest uptick in success are kind of on both other ends. So it, I think the driver is pretty easy for, for most people to change where they can kind of get a dependable ball flight hit a little further and get that up and running. And, you know, over the wintertime, you don't really have that distance control factor. Right. Hitting wedges. So, and, and let's say there's snow on the ground. As soon as that snow's gone, start hitting those wedges. And if you work on those fundamentals that we talked about, like, okay, I can move the ball position around here, here. I can make sure that my grip's okay. Make sure, you know, I have a pretty good visual where my alignment should be. Okay, take it out there, start hitting wedges. Okay, I'm going to hit full wedges, half wedges. I'm going to make sure that my lofts and lies are good. Go between pitching wedge to 60. You know, now all of a sudden you have a bunch of usable shots. Write them down every week. Um, and pretty soon you're going to be pretty good when you go out and play. You might not be hitting it perfect with, you know, your your mid irons, but um, you know that could be at least the two tail ends could be pretty pretty good. Um, and then after a couple of weeks, you'll you'll start attacking those uh, mid irons pretty well. So I'm looking at um, 
like I'm on your Instagram right now, right? And you're, you know, obviously you have a ton yeah. of a ton of players on here. And you know, the thing I like about your Instagram is it's not just all stud players. You know, you get you get some higher handicaps in here, some big improvements. But for mm-hmm. for somebody coming to see somebody coming to see you, that's like a twenty handicap, right? That's you know trying to get better. Mm-hmm trying to make some changes i guess right before the season starts and somebody that plays three four times a week with his buddies or whatever whatever like yeah how much do you recommend really getting into the, uh, the change in the golf swing before the season is the winter time a better time to start tackling some big changes oh yeah okay oh yeah yeah absolutely even for tour players okay so um you need to you need kind of a safe space to do it <laughs> and um yeah and you know, especially here in california <laughs> but, <laughs> no the, um, that was my bad joke. Okay. So, um, yeah, I, you need kind of a, um, I just you, picked up on that one. Yeah. Sorry. Where you go? Hey, um, I, I hear you. So yeah, we kind of need to have a, a situation where you're not panicking to start where you can actually make, you know, a good assessment where you were, where you want to go, have a conversation with your teacher that you're having, uh, you know, assess you. And say, I think I can do X, Y, Z in this, in this off season. And then just hit the ball roll, uh, running on it. Now you're not, you're not going to make this conscious effort in June. In, in June, um, it shouldn't be the case. And, and here, here's the funny part about this is an ideal, whether it's a, a regular player or a tour player, it's always an off season conversation. And what happens is they might get to, to June, July, and they regress right back to what they used to do. Right. But it should be an aha moment to go, oh, yeah, okay, well, I was doing this, you know, in January. Um, and by the way, I was hitting it like this. So I was hitting it this far or this was the pattern or whatever. And now you have something that's easier to go back for. So because you do your your not that there's really muscle memory, but there really kind of is because you put some work in earlier and your brain's already been kind of adapted to it. So it shifts back to it pretty easily. But it's not a good time to reinvent the wheel. <laughs> so no, no. Um, where do you sit on? Um, and I get this question a lot. Where do you sit on players that are going to go get fit for clubs all while working on a, a new golf swing? You know, should players, you know, get fit for clubs when they're starting to change their swing, or they should change their swing and get fit for, fit for clubs? I've asked this to a few coaches. I just want to get your answer. Yeah. So I've actually. So with my like aspiring professional golfers, I actually go to the fitting. And um, like I've been to, you know, Tylos and Taylor made several times this year already. And generally coming into the off season, we've had kind of a weird year, so we can kind of say it's been an off season for them. But, um, and what's interesting is they go down there and I have one kid, Jack Ireland, who was being fitted at, at Titleist. And when he was in college, he was like way down and across on his irons. And he kind of hit these squeezer drivers that cut. And he significantly changed those things where he's hitting like one or two up on the driver, you know, right around 118, 119 with a driver with a speed now instead of 115, 116. Launch angles changed, you know, four degrees. And it's a pretty straight ball flight now. So what happened is he's hitting these irons that were designed to, you know, control what he was doing before. And it was pretty apparent there needed to be a change. So he goes down to Titleist and changes his stuff. And it was good for me to see that. Right. Um, because that, that was a, and, and kids 
that are growing. Like I had another kid that was a titleist that uh, had grown a bunch and the stuff he was using before didn't match um, all within the time of him making changes. So, but in Jack's case, that was a good indication of him changing his stuff first and then on the back end complementing with the, the golf swing, but, or with the, with the clubs. The problem I have with you changing clubs first is that if a player is struggling with a ball flight and then you make the clubs more upright, now I'm chasing why is the ball going left. <laughs> so it's just like those things are important. But if the player understands, hey, my clubs are three degrees upright. By the way, my vertical plane is doing this and I hit this much down on a ball. Okay, well, that is something we can tweak. Um, when it gets into shaft, shaft conversations, I pull, I grab my phone and call up a guy like Pat McCoy right. and, and ask him, Hey, this is going on with a shaft. And he's like, Oh yeah, that's counterbalanced. Right. And it won't work. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's a sticky one. That's a really sticky one. So I try to, I, I have a pretty good, um, on my brain and my scope of things I have a pretty good relationship with the club guys. They all might think that I'm an a-hole, um, <laughs> behind my back, but no, but in, in, in all seriousness, um, they're all really, really, I look at it like a team, right. you know, cause they, they want their clubs to perform in everybody's hands. doesn't matter the company. So, um, you know, they're very open to and more so than I think in the past, I think, um, in the past, they kind of said, well, this is your deal. Just do it. But now with the technology and look, the, the guys at TaylorMade, they all know, you know, the numbers better than I do. Um, so, you know, I think it becomes a cohesive team situation where um, it's important. Even my college kids, like we'll go to, I went with one of my, uh, one of my players to uh, um, the one in Irvine. I'm drawing a blank on the name of the club fitting place. Um, how oh, is it? It's Irvine golf performance. It was not them. It was outdoors at the um, Oak Creek. Um, Oh, I don't know what's at Oak Creek. Yeah, I've drawn a blank, but um, you know, I just went down and and they hit balls and tried stuff out, and I looked at the numbers. The fitter looked at the numbers, and I was like, "Yeah, that's kind of what they do." And we found something that was good and that fit the eye, and we're good to go. But I think that's important. I think if I'm not a club fitter, I don't have time to to not only educate myself on all that, but um, you know, there's a new shaft coming out every year. So, well, yeah. And it's also, I mean, you can only do what you can do right in that, in that arena. Cause you're coming to the players that are, you know, I'm assuming a lot of the players that you get are, you know, right around springtime, people are geeked up to spend some money and go to Dana Dahlquist before the summer starts and get some nuggets for the summer. And, you know, you're, if, if, for example, the clubs are wrong for them already because they, you know, they haven't been fit. It was just, you're, you're working against a variable that you can't see. Right. So I'd have yeah. to imagine going to a fitting and seeing the, you know, what a player is actually doing with his golf club. And from that perspective probably helps, but that's a rarity. You can't do that every single time. So yeah, you can't sort you of can. it's blind fate. So you sort of have to, as a coach treat it as all things are equal. It's like, you know, I don't know what your clubs are doing. This is just what I see the club doing. Basically this is yeah. how you're hitting the, so at that point, the ball's kind of telling you what's going on. Uh, yeah. The clubs are, clubs are too upright or the shafts are wrong. And It'll reveal itself. Yeah, unless, unless it's blankly obvious. It's, I mean, I get that sometimes where I have a one, one guy that's an attorney, young guy, um, 
you know, kind of picked up the game later in life has a pretty darn good golf swing. And within the fourth lesson, I was like, okay, you're getting rid of that driver. Right. Because he went from swinging at like 90 to 110 and it was built for 85. So it was just like, that's a blatantly obvious situation. So, um, but you know, when you get a good player who's swinging, you know, 115 above that, you know, ball falls a little right because of the, the shaft's not tipped. Okay. (laughs) That's, that's not my, that's not my, I I can't see that. So, right. Um, very easily, especially with an Eldorado range ball. (laughs) Um, Okay. We have a few more questions here. I'm going to ask you a couple of dumb holiday questions. Just like, you know, yeah. Okay. So we're going to go back to the tour a little bit. Who out there, the guys that you've ever seen or worked, not the guys you work with, just people that you watch in the range, who hits it the best of all the guys you've seen out there? Like, who's the one guy out there you're just like, Jesus, God, this guy hits it? Well, I mean, I mean, obviously, Victor hits it really, really special. Right. There's no doubt about that. Um, and I, I think uh, historically, and I mean, Rory with a driver hits it unbelievable. I think Adam Scott. Okay. Is kind of a guy. When I watch Adam hit the ball, it's pretty much laced, absolutely okay. laced. Yeah, I mean, I look at it as a, as a long term. Yeah, I think that's for sure. Like, if you had to watch a golf swing for the next ten years straight, you watch Adam Scott's. Yeah, yeah, the whole thing. That's yeah, a pretty popular. Really good. That's a, actually I have a story. I have an Adam Scott. Actually, an Adam Scott Nico story really quickly. So we were. Nico was qualifying. I think this was at Los Coyotes. This is in 1997 or 98. And it was the yeah. U.S. Junior Am qualifier. And it was like Jimmy O and Nico and all these kids. You know, they were just babies back then. <clears throat> and everybody was talking about this kid from Australia. It was Adam Scott. And he went out in the first round. His 36 holes for the you know, U.S. Junior Am qualifier. He shot 74, and they're like, oh, this kid from Australia, he's not that good. Like, he's never going to do much, whatever, whatever. He's all hype. And he went out in the afternoon and shot 61. <laughs> and, and he, I mean, he beat the lowest score by, like, seven shots. I mean, it wasn't even close. And um, I remember that was the first time I'd ever heard Adam Scott's because, to be honest, in 1998, the Australian kid that was blowing everybody back was Baddeley. Yeah. Who, who was yeah. unique. He was very unique for his age at that point. Like, you know, the first time I saw Aaron Baddeley was at Conway Farms when Nico qualified for the U.S. Junior Am. And he was, he lost to James O in the final, but he was 50 times, yeah. he was 50 times better than everybody out there. And that was a big, if you go back and look at the field of the 98, I mean, it's Hunter Mahan, James O, Nico Bellini, Ricky Barnes, Ty Tryon, Sean O'Hare. I mean, there's some studs in that class. Yeah. And, and Baddeley was just unbelievable. So anyway, it's the blast in the past. Okay. Uh, third, uh, was, is that the first question or second question? That's the third, third question I have for you is as a coach, if you could pick a major that one of your players would win, what would it be? Oh man. Um, like what represents the that, total, like what represents the total golfers game of all the majors as a coach? The total golfers game. Well, depends on the venue for the U S open. Unfortunately, I, I hate to say that, but there's a little bit of that's like the Jeff, Jeff Shackleford sitting on my left shoulder <laughs> answer. Right. But I think, um, you know, I, there's something about the Masters okay. that is 
you know, just as a kid, you know, watching Jack. Um, and to me, that's a big one. Uh, I know for the lineage of, of the British Open, that would be probably like the number two, but I'd say the Masters number one. You know, okay. I, I think looking at it as, as from a total golfer, you kind of look at the US Open historically. If somebody, you know, goes out and plays, you know, and wins at Shinnecock, that's pretty awesome. But still, I think, I think the British Open is it's the open for a reason. Right. Yeah. The, it's funny. <laughs> so, that yeah. The, the U S open is my, I would say the U S open of the last, I don't know, seven or eight years. It's kind of lost its luster for me. Cause you know, every, every yeah. couple of years you get that oddball 14, 15 under that wins. It's like, wait a second. Like, yeah. Two under wins the open. It's not 15. Yeah. It, it, I don't know how long back I could really, say that changed for me, but it's been over 10 years. Um, Cause I always looked at it like it was a British open of, of the U S like right. it was, there was a, and you know, I mean, I went to a few of them and yeah, like, like Shinnecock looking at it, you're like, okay. But then the severity of the greens and then like the, some of the fairways are like, Oh my goodness. Like it just didn't kind of match up to what you kind of would picture um the outcome would be but yeah so the answer to the question augusta for augusta sure. okay what uh sentimental reasons well I, i'd say the same thing what's what is your favorite tournament out there that when you when you do travel out there what's your what's the best one to go to like what's the funnest one to go to i should say the one that's the most fun i mean the one that i enjoy the most but the one that's most fun most fun is obviously the one in Arizona, I think for everybody, for not for the coaches. Um, <laughs> for people that don't even think watch golf, that tournament's fun. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, yeah, you know, like, you know, I've had fun. I think the BMW is awesome. Um, depends on the golf course. I mean, I want to say LA Open. I really do because I, I'm an LA guy. But such a, it such is a, like such a shitty range, though, isn't it? Like the the, the, the practice it's a tough range. Yeah. There's no food for the teachers. I mean, there's <laughs> like just yeah, that's the one. I mean, and then the parking and the, just getting there. It's obviously once you get there and take those things aside, it's awesome. Um, Barclays is phenomenal. What's Memorial like? Is um, Memorial pretty teacher? I, I imagine Memorial's got to be pretty teacher friendly. It's a good range. Yeah. Um, it's a good area too. Like it's a, it's a pretty cool area. Um, yeah. I mean, th- those are, that's a good one right there. Man, I would, yeah. Yeah. I, I, that, that would be a good one. That one or Barclays. Those are the two. Okay. Do you remember, say. do you remember your, your first tournament out there? You got out there for the first time. Who was the student and, and when was it? Grant weight in 2000. Pre two thousand eight or nine or something like that. Oh wow! I would okay. say it might have been Reno Open or something like that. Um, if I can remember correctly, were you nervous your first time yeah. you went out there on tour? Um, yes and no. Here, here's kind of the funny thing. So, because I was around O'Grady for a long time, there was always 
there was some tour players in influx. Right. So when he was teaching, so, you know, Steve Elkington was there. Yeah. And so he's I kind of already knew trip. like, okay. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so he was like a Mac trip. guy and yeah. Yeah. And so it wasn't like, you know, I wasn't that enamored um, until like you go to like Tory Pines and there's tiger and you're, you're like, Oh, okay. Now I'm at, you know, this is big <laughs> leagues. I'm at, I'm, at, I'm at a golf tournament. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's where it was kind of like a little bit of a shell shock for a moment. And then, um, yeah, yeah, it was, yeah, I think that's the first one. That was a good question. I'm gonna have to think about that more. I have to go back in your archives, Dana was, uh, yeah. when you were working with Mac back in the day, mm-hmm. cause he had a bunch of, did you know Donnie Hill? You probably know Donnie Hill now. Don't you? Yeah. Donnie. Yeah. Yeah. No Donnie. Yeah. Yeah. Cause he was, uh, you know, for people that don't know, he was an old, uh, he's a second baseman, third baseman for the angels for a long time. And yeah, the chew spit and beard drinking maniac. Teacher. Yeah. And, um, but, uh, he coached, uh, I call him my second father, but he's kind of like my second dad, big brother's Mark Langston, who does radio for the angels. And he was played a lot of golf with Donnie and he always had some really interesting Mac stories. He's like, you know, he come over to Langston's like, you know, half drunk. He's like, look, I just got off the phone with Mac O'Grady. And we just spent four and a half hours talking about the le- the movement of the left thumb on the you know, top of the grip. Yeah, he's like it's, it's insanity. So is that what yeah. it's like though? I mean, is the guy is, is he that granular when he's talking about stuff? Because yeah, stories stories I've heard make him sound like a lunatic, but he's Mac O'Grady. So yeah, I think he. So there's a little bit of embellishment on his part for that. I think that's a little bit of the control mechanism that he tries to have with individuals. I think there's, there's also a level of sincerity to the message he's trying to convey. So there's, they like compete against each other. So (laughs) if if you're within that circle, there's, there's that. And then on the back end of that, there's like, he's going to have a fear of loss situation. That's going to be destructive. And um, so he's going to sabotage that at some point. So, and if you know that going in, you're like, okay, whatever, you know, and, um, but if you don't, you kind of take it personal. So I, I think that's the, the quirkiness aspect. Now, um, no, there's, there's, you know, I think a lot of us that worked with that camp or were in that camp or whatever you want to call it, we still have admiration for the, the situation because we owe a lot to the individual. Um, <laughs> however, um, you know, there was a lot that you look back on, well, you know, my behavior during that time was just, you know, not the way it should have been, you know, right. like there wasn't, there wasn't a reciprocation situation that was normal. So, cause there were, you know, you know, another guy in, in SoCal was, was uh, Bobby Laskin. Oh yeah. I know Bobby. So like, I mean, yeah, I mean, you couldn't ask for a nicer individual um, and who went above and beyond and, you know, it, ended badly. So I, I think that's, uh, unfortunate, but I think, you know, it, it's, uh, it's time and space in golf that, um, and it's a character of golf, mm-hmm. uh, which is kind of cool. Uh, but yeah. Um, yeah, boy, Donnie, is he still down at strawberry farms? I think so. I haven't seen Donnie Hill. We used to play in this, um, I don't know if I ever told you this, we used to play in this thing called the Wednesday game, which, okay. It's all the South County, 
baseball players, actually retired, and some that were still playing, and then against the San Diego County players. So, you know, depending on what club you're in, uh-huh. Santa Fe, the Bridges. So it'd be Booney and Kirk McCaskill, Mike Witt, Donnie Hill, Charlie Nagy, Robin Ventura, Langston, me. I, I was the only civilian in this group. Like, I was, there was me and okay. a bunch of ball players. McGuire played. Um, but I used to play in every Wednesday with Donnie and Mike Scott and all these guys. And then that yeah. ended like in 2008, like when the mortgage crashed, okay. a lot of guys sold their houses and their memberships. So the, the right. team kind right. of went away, but you know, he was an interesting guy, but he was a big Donnie. Uh, he was a big, uh, Mac O'Grady disciple. You know, he, yeah. he, he drank the Kool-Aid. He drank it hard. Yeah, he did. But he was yeah. a good, good, you know, it, it worked. He's a good coach. I mean, he really understands the golf swing. Um, and he's a good player. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it had something. Um, okay. Last question I have for you. And I would yeah. be remiss if I didn't ask you this question. Give me the status of Robert Pang's golf swing. I see some improvements in his golf swing. What are you and Robert Pang working on? He's a dear friend of mine and I'm seeing some good yes. stuff, but what is there hope for Panger? Yes, there is. So yeah, Robert, it, Robert is, is a busy man because he's, you know, a big, big job. With, Big job. And so, but he loves golf and he takes it seriously. He plays in some events. And one of the big things with Robert that he's done for 30 years, maybe plus, is that he essentially, his upper center tilts back from his lower center and his lead leg stays in flexion for a long time. So for him through the transition, he's got to actually create separation. So he's got to like rotate his lower body while keeping his upper body kind of close. That's kind of his deal. And um, for the last probably four months, he's been pretty darn good at it to the point where like he won't hit this every, you know, 10 shots with a wedge, like he won't chunk it. Right. You know, Cause that was kind of the old pattern. He would chunk it um, with his longer clubs. He, you know, takes some curve off. He won't hit like one way, right. Um, anymore or less of that. And his, his trajectory on his mid irons is much lower because you kind of hit it up in the air too high. So that's like the big thing that he's worked on um, outside of a little, few little vanity things here and there. Right. So, so I don't know if you, I don't know if you know the Robert Pang story, but he, he almost married my sister back in uh, 2000 and, you know, mid 2000. So 2004, they dated for three years, lived together and we always call him the one that got away because we're because when when my sister was dating Robert Pang, and for the folks that don't know who Robert Pang is, for people listening to the show, he's the head prof- golf professional at Big Canyon, which is Stu Hagstead. We mentioned his name. Freddie Couples is a member there. It's a big, brilliant, awesome Newport Beach Country Club, you know, with a ton of dough in it or whatever. Everybody calls it the Ditch. It's in Newport Beach, but he's the director of golf there. So when I when, yeah. when he was dating my sister, I was like junior member at big Canyon for three years, like carte blanche, you know, practice, play the whole thing. And then when they broke up, my dad and I didn't talk to my sister for like a month because she just, just, oh, really? she just destroyed our golf. <laughs> <laughs> all, of our, all of our golf went away. Our whole setup. Oh, no. and we were so pissed. And like, why couldn't you take it for the team? Like that was such a, that was the greatest. <laughs> you just screwed everybody. But anyway, I was selfish, but uh anyway that is that is that is awesome him and i stayed <laughs> friends forever and i still love him dearly and i just saw him a couple months ago and he told me that he's been working really hard in his game so and he's 
he's a legit golf junkie, which I love. Not, the most director of golfs that I know like golf or they're, they're kind of over it. They're just like, you know, they're making money being a director yeah. of golf. He is like gear geek first, golf geek first. Then he's the director of golf. Like he's super into his game yeah. and, and, and loves it. So I always get excited when he's, uh, when he's doing it. So double D, where do people find you on Instagram or yeah. people want to get a lesson? Yeah. Dana Dahlquist, just, just my name, Dana Dahlquist. I think that's the best place to look. And, okay. um, yeah, I think, or you can just, you know, go to my website, danadalquistgolf.com. So. Uh, that's where you find the man. I'm looking at his IG right now. He's got a, just a shitload of followers and uh, lots of cool stuff on there. So, you know, it's, it's kind of like the last show of the year or second to last show of the year. It's a nice, relaxed show. Uh, yeah. I want to thank you for giving me so much time. But uh, I, love, I love talking to you. I think you're very interesting, very smart, uh, brilliant guy, Dana. So uh, anytime I can get an hour and a half with you, I'm a happy man. Anytime, anytime. And I like the Dodger hat. <laughs> it was literally, my hair was such a mess. It was the only one I could find down here in the playroom. I was scrambling around. Uh, it's all good. But uh, you take care of yourself. Have a Merry Christmas. And you too. Uh, I look forward to talking to you next year. We'll get to figure out some fun stuff to do in 2021. Absolutely. You bet. Right. You bet. Thanks, Thanks. my man. All right. Cheers. Cheers.